0: I am not in the business of naming, shaming, and blaming people. That's just not how my approach is. And so I wanted this to be a book with a mix of powerful storytelling, some clickbait myths and headlines, but then also so people can feel safe reading it and feel like, okay, I'm I'm trying to meet them where they are and I'm trying to get them to think differently about some of these topics, which is hard to do.
1: This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to Brand Story. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and today we are kicking off season three of our podcast with a special guest, Mita Malik. Mita has been a guest on our podcast before, and today we are talking to Mita about the release of her new book. Her book is entitled Reimagining Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, Hi, Mira. Welcome back to the podcast.
0: Oh, Steve, thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited.
1: It's so exciting and thank you for including me in your the release of your book and uh, sending me a preview copy and it was a it was just amazing to get to read it.
0: Oh, Steve, I think you're, like I said, one of a dozen people who have read it. My husband still hasn't read it, although he's lived it. So he'll read it when he gets his copy.
1: He knows the anecdotes and the stories already. Yes,
0: he knows it all. He knows it all. Yes.
1: Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I found it to be challenging and really thought provoking and quite a, you know, just a brain full of information that it makes you challenge your own biases and try to work with them and it was inc- it's an incredible read. You know, I, I know it's for leaders and for people in the workplace. I honestly think this book should be for any human being.
0: Oh, Steve, that's the best endorsement ever. Best testimonial. Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, it's just a wonderful book. And one of the things I like about it the most is all the personal stories you use. So can you tell me a little bit about... You know, the undertaking of this book, how long it took you to get to your first book, because you're you're a prolific writer. You've written for every major publication out there.
0: Most people don't know this. When I left undergrad, I had a really close friend who helped me. She was in Hollywood, in the literary world. She helped me find a, a literary agent. And my mother reminded me the other day, ever since I could pick up a pen, I've always wanted to write. And so I wrote a novel right out of undergrad. I had an agent. I got a lot of feedback, Steve, and I was young and stubborn. I wasn't going to change it. This is my vision. And so then I said, you know what? I'll just write another novel. So I wrote a second novel. And then I wrote that novel, got similar feedback. That novel was apparently too dark. It was it a was really good novel, but it was a little too dark for the marketplace. So again, I didn't change it. I wrote a third novel, Steve. I wrote a third novel. This happens over the course of like two, three years. And didn't sell. And then my agent one day, I remember getting the email. I think I then had Yahoo back then. She sends me a nasty note. She dumps me on my butt over email, like stop calling my office. Like I'm no longer representing you. It was like heartbreaking. And so then I was at this crossroads. I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to get a master's in creative writing and continue to pursue the art of storytelling, which I'm so passionate about? Or am I going to try to make money and pay my bills? And so that's when I went to get an MBA. (laughs) that's really it. I went to Duke, I went to get my MBA. And then I graduate from graduate school, Steve, I write a fourth novel, and that novel does not get published. People just don't believe this because it did not happen overnight for me. So then I start a career in corporate America in marketing, and I bury the seed of the dream, which you know, when you bury a seed, it just starts to grow. And then all these other signs in my life of coming to me of just you need to start writing again, which I did. And then I come to this book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. I wrote it four years ago. I had an agent, and it took me so long to get published because I would say many of the inequities in publishing, right? Come back to me when you have written a book like Cheryl Sandberg. That's a true story. I have the email. There are a lot of people who look like Mita writing books like this. Okay. Mita has great writing, but she doesn't have a really big following, like nobody who's going to buy the book, which might have been the case four years ago.
1: Right isn't anymore.
0: Well, thank you. But I really think that like the rejection was redirection. My friend, Lan Fan, founder of Community of Seven said to me, who, you know, she was like, just continue to build community and conversation. The book deal will happen. And through my podcast, Brown Table Talk, my, my co-host DC Marshall introduced me to Wiley. She has a book deal with them. So here we are.
1: Man, that is quite a journey. That really is. That's like so many ups and downs and you know, you just have to wonder, you know, all your experience and even your experience through that, I feel like ends up in this book and informs some of the thinking. So, you know, hopefully it was meant to be, I'm sorry that that road had to be that bumpy though.
0: I'm really happy because you know what, I'm now sharing with people, like people think I was an overnight success. I was not. And, you know, Steve, when I first wrote the book, I thought, oh my God, my book's going to get auctioned. Have you ever heard of that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When books get auctioned, I was like, oh, this is so good. It's in my head. I'm like, it's going to get auctioned. I didn't get a single bite. Like, nobody forget the auction. No one was interested in it. But I was like, I know it's a good book, and I know it's going to make impact, and I'm not going to give up.
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes it's timing, and it's it's finding someone on the publishing end that believes in the message or it it connects with. And so I think your timing for this book is amazing. I think it's something I hope the world is a little bit more ready to read it. And, you know, I think you, you do almost a magical thing in this book in that you handle incredibly difficult topics in a really, really kind, nurturing way for the reader. You kind of bring us through these experiences and they're difficult and they're hard to hear and it makes you think, but you do it with such compassion for the reader. I really, really applaud you for that.
0: Oh, Steve! Yeah,
1: it's that means amazing. A
0: lot, since you're only one of twelve people who read it so <laughs> far, so I'm really happy. No, I mean, part of it was, you know, as you've known me in our time, you know, been on the podcast second time, and we've been in touch over the years on on LinkedIn, how we met. I am not in the business of naming, shaming, and blaming people. That's just not how my approach is, and so I wanted this to be a book with a mix of powerful storytelling, some clickbait myths and headlines, but then also so people can feel safe reading it and feel like, okay, I am, I'm trying to meet them where they are. And I'm trying to get them to think differently about some of these topics, which is hard to do.
1: You know, and and for a lot of people, the word inclusion, it's, it's just a word, you know, it's not a visceral experience, like we understand it intellectually. But I don't think we understand it as viscerally as someone that's experienced it. So at the very beginning of the book, you set the stage by talking about, and it really hit me, pretty hard at one point where we you're talking about just how you grew up and not feeling included by other kids. Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause the word inclusion, it's almost like there's a, a discipline of it now, but it really, it's about being included and uh, that's so human.
0: Yeah. I love that you referenced that story, Steve. I talk a lot about like, we talk a lot about inclusion, but do we talk about exclusion and what that feels like? Cause if we can all go back to anyone listening and I'll ask you to pull up a memory, just think about a time when you weren't included, when you weren't belong, when you didn't feel like you belonged, where someone forgot about you, intentionally or unintentionally. It can be a recent story from work, and it can be my story from kickball, right? And like, even to this day, in corporate retreats and events, I hate group sports and particularly kickball, because this is how it went. There was always two students who were appointed captains, and and think about the intention. The gym teacher was trying to, make sort of a democratic approach. People are being selected. Everyone's being picked until the two teams are formed. And I swear to God, Steve, I was always the last or second to last. It was a good day if I wasn't last. Oh my God, Mita's on the team. Oh, she can't kick, groan. And then you're in this horrible experience and it's what's happening in our workplaces every day. Like you're being picked for a team and then you're not good enough, and then you're being sort of outcast by your team. But the other thing I share in the in Reimagine Inclusion, Steve, which you might remember, is that the gym teacher one day decides to try to help me and says, well, you really like to read, so why don't you grab a book and just sit on the bench and read? You don't have to play. And the intention there is a really good intention because he notices this is happening to me, but the impact is I feel even worse because now I'm like, oh my God, I really suck. Even he notices and I should just be reading and not. And so I use that as an analogy to think about that's happening in our workplaces all day long. Like it's a meeting invite you were left off of, but you're leading the meeting. It's a drinks event that someone assumed because you're a caregiver and you have small children that you can't attend. It's a corporate offsite and you didn't make the list. You know, it was the top 100 leaders, but you're 101. (laughs) Right. And they can only pay for the top, right? It's just sort of like it happens every day, all day to us. And so if we could pull on that feeling of what it feels like for us to personally be excluded, we might actually think about what it then means to include other people.
1: Yeah. And I think that's one of the most powerful concepts in this book and something I really connected with because all of us have been left out in different ways, we all have different experiences. But when you're excluded systematically by people's behavior, it's very hard to relate to that unless it's happened to you. But I, I, you know, those stories and making it personal like that, I think really reaches, it really touches people and makes you feel it instead of just think it. And so that's really powerful. And then you go on, you went on in the book to talk about you get into the workplace. And of course, everything's magically better right now, Yeah, (laughs) you know, you get into the workplace and it's not like all of a sudden it's this wonderful, inclusive environment. And there's a story you tell, um, in myth one about guess whose baby it is. Oh, yes. That story is so powerful. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Steve, you really studied this book. I'm impressed. This I love is your amazing. Book.
1: Yeah, I know your book really, really well right now.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Absolutely.
0: There's a game that's haunted me for most of my career. It's called Guess Who the Baby Game Is. And I give a specific example in the book, but it goes something like this. It is, and and Steve, I mentioned that in the book that happened early in my career, but it happens. It's happened many times to me since then. So in the book, I talk about we're launching a, a baby product line at this company, and it's a really great idea to celebrate the launch. Let's create a wall of babies, and they're all employees, right? So like, let's everybody bring in their baby picture and put it on the wall. It's called "Guess Who the Baby Is," and like, that's an amazing game. It's like who doesn't love babies? Like we all love babies, right? And so then. <laughs> I'll never forget a black colleague coming up to me and saying, yeah, this is funny. Guess who the black baby is? It's me. Because when there's not diversity of representation and you look at the wall, there's only a handful of black and brown babies. And in some cases, only one black baby. And so how is that fun for that person? And I'll tell you, Steve, that has happened to me since that moment, at least three times. I've had to do this in leadership team meetings where I was the lonely only, the only person of color. And it's a fun icebreaker. Uh, it's not so fun for me because you're going to know who the brown baby is. There's no guessing, right? Um, Similar thing happened to me once with a women's ERG where they were trying to celebrate women leaders. And here I am as a woman leader and they want to do this guess who baby game. And I'm just like, again, I'm the only brown baby, but I don't have the heart to tell them that because here they are trying to celebrate women leaders. And this was earlier in my career. And so I, I just did it. And I felt really crappy about it, but I did it.
1: Wow. I mean, that's, I just think that's such a powerful example because of just how much it's about casually being biased and not thinking past the end of your own nose. You know, you're just thinking from your point of view, you're not trying to be empathic and think how it's going to make other people feel. So you come up with activities that you think are great because they're from your point of view and that's wonderful right up to the point where it's making other people feel terrible.
0: Yeah. And I think it goes back to, so what you're alluding to is intentions versus impact, which I talk a lot about in Reimagine inclusion. Like I think about the guess who baby game or think about any game or think about kickball. The intentions are good, right? You think about the, the, the gym teacher is like, I want the kids to decide these teams. I don't want to do it. I want to empower them. And then the impact that's felt same thing. Like whoever designed that game and whoever continues to design that game and forces people to do it, they're not thinking about how that might impact the other person, because oftentimes we're so caught up in our own positive and good intent. Like, I know my intentions are really good. Like I know, and I don't stop to think about, well, okay, but is it really? And how is Steve going to feel about that?
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, you're not really taking other people into account. You're doing things from your own point of view. And I think that's a, a huge thing in the workplace that happens over and over again. And you have another example from myth one and myth one is of course I support black lives matter. You know, why are you asking if I have any black friends, which I love your myth titles, by the way, they all make you think and you, you work your way through all 13 of them and it's just mind blowing. It's amazing. But you had talked about having to help or not having to, being asked to help a leader, do posts for Black Lives Matter. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: So as Steve, you're alluding to, every myth is clickbait. It makes you think. And it opens with a really powerful story that has happened somewhere in our workplaces. And I think people will read it and be like, wow, that, did did she know? Was she reading my personal journal? No. these are These are unfortunately evergreen, unfortunately. So this is working with a white leader who identified as a man and he really wanted to show his support Uh, for Black Lives Matter and social media and this was an executive I was working with and he was getting frustrated because on how to technically use social media but then also what he was going to post and and then what he shows me and I won't do the spoiler alert it doesn't make sense that he would post this and I said to him well have you talked to your black friends and colleagues like on how you can be showing up as an ally what would they think about you wanting to show up this way in social media. And he gets really annoyed. And he's like, why are you asking if I have any black friends? Like, that's not like, why are you asking if I have black friends? And I said, "I, I didn't ask that question. But it goes to the fact, Steve, that, you know, most of us in from a US perspective are still self segregating. And that's the really hard truth is that over two thirds of white Americans are self segregating similar numbers for black Americans. And you start to think, wow, this work doesn't start at our conference room tables. It starts at our kitchen tables, right? This is about how we're spending our time outside of work. And so how can you say that you support Black Lives Matter if you don't actually have meaningful relationships with Black individuals where I I always say, like, I'm on an ally to be a journey for the Black community. My Black friends will tell you and colleagues if I'm an ally. That's not for me to say, but I also try to really invest in building meaningful relationships with people whose experiences aren't my own, knowing that I'll never fully understand what their life is like. But I'm I'm trying. And so that's really the part that's missing for me. We want to take people through a four hour unconscious bias training at work. God, I hope no one's doing that. But it's like that that's not the opportunity. The opportunity is actually starting in our communities.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it comes down, you know, you talk a little bit about how bias is so deeply ingrained. Sometimes that we don't see it. So, by being with people who are different than us, we may start to actually recognize our biases and get to work with them a little bit. You don't get to really solve them. You don't get to just be like, oh, I'm better. I fixed it. You know, it's just a journey. And it really is a journey of empathy in a lot of ways because this stuff is really deeply ingrained.
0: It is. You know, I also talk about in the book, and I talk a lot now about, you know, as I'm trying to raise kind and inclusive human beings. And we all have little people in our life. The, the othering can start at home, and we don't even realize it. So if I'm talking to my children, and I end up using language about Steve, oh, he's funny, strange, weird, odd, awkward. And that becomes how we start to other and stereotype people. And that actually becomes the gateway to hate. If we go to an extreme, because we start to just think about the language and it's not that I mean anything by calling maybe Steve strange or weird or awkward, but there's something there in way I'm describing him and my children are picking up on it. Or if my children come home and say, oh, my classmates weird. I'm like, well, tell me more about that. Why do you think they're weird? Like, let's not use that language. Like everybody's a little weird. Everybody's a little like like you know what what do we mean by that? And so I think that's really important too the role modeling in our communities and starts in our homes.
1: Yeah, that's a, a incredible point because the the you know any language that sort of distances people as other and portrays them in a way it's part you know defensive and part offensive. It's a strange thing that human beings do. And you don't really recognize it unless you start to think about it. And starting to think about it takes things like your book. You know, there are, there are wonderful teaching moments through this entire book that just help you think about some of this from the point of view of not being like you're bad and you're wrong and you're doing everything wrong. It's just a really gentle way of saying, have you ever considered this? So there's some, there's some amazing stuff. In, in Myth 1, there's also a section around media and how it influences and the stereotypes that we grow up with in stories. And we have a lot of storytellers that tune into our podcast and, you know, from Disney movies to CNN, TikTok, Fox news, we learn all these stereotypes and internalize them. And you use an example of the show Friends that I thought was so visceral for me, you know, because your experience of how you experienced Friends speaks volumes. Can you talk about that a little?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a few years ago. It was the big Friends anniversary, right? They even had like a Pottery burn collection. I mean, it was a frenzy on the media. And I just, you know, they're not my friends. They're six white smiling faces looking at me. And I'm like, this is not, these aren't my friends. This isn't who I grew up with. And so I always looked at that image and I never felt included. So I never understood the frenzy around Friends. I never watched it. And to give Friends credit, I know in prior seasons that I've studied, they did focus on diversity representation and bring in additional storylines and characters, but they were never the core group of friends. And so that's my call call to action. If you're listening, it's like, who are your friends? Right. And if I did a quick little exercise, a longer one that's in Reimagine inclusion, which Steve, I'm sure you went through, but it's like, you know, think about who the five people you call on in your life, not your family, your friends, right? Not your family, your friends. When you have a life celebration, a hard decision, something's happened and you're devastated, you're grieving, who do you call to talk to? Text, message, and if they all look like you, act like you, and think like you, this is the hard conversation we need to have is that we're still self-segregating as a country and in our communities, yet we expect people to act differently when they show up at work and we expect people to all of a sudden not have these stereotypes about people. It was interesting, um, Steve, I was talking to, actually my friend Lan about this. I said to her, you know, it's really interesting. Like I grew up in a predominantly white community for most of my upbringing. I don't have many stereotypes about white people because I know a lot of, I knew a lot of white men and white women growing up. Right. And so like, I don't have stereotypes of how I expect, you know, white men or white women to behave because I had access to lots of different relationships and I still do. And so that's also like, you know, not having access to a lot of Indian friends growing up where I was. I'm sure that I thought all Indian families acted like us which is not true right That's my own stereotype and bias because I didn't have access to other 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 South Asian friends and relationships not that many when I was growing up.
1: Yeah I think that's such an I mean such an interesting thing to think about about how we need to intentionally broaden, are not, uh, you know, it's like broadening our horizons and reaching out to people that maybe we wouldn't usually reach out to and developing those relationships. It's a, it's a great challenge and a great thing to think about because when we get the opportunity, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid and they want to, they instinctively start to avoid anyone that's different than them because maybe it makes them a little uncomfortable. They don't have to say, but I think that's the work. I think that's what we need to do is just reach out to each other and listen.
0: Absolutely. And listen, if you're living in a state, I've gotten this before, you remember, you probably read about this, but like Vermont, you know, statistically one of the wider states in our country in the US. And so a leader, you know, leaders would say to me, what do you want me to do? Move. I can't move. Okay. There's something called social media. There was the pandemic. How did I meet you? I met you on LinkedIn. Like there's so many if you want to be intentional, there's so many ways to bu- build so many ways to build relationships through social media. If you're at an organization that has employee resource groups and events, you can go to those events. You could physically drive, right? You can go to another town, go to another state if that's possible. If you have money and access to taking vacations, I know not everyone does, but if you're traveling to be intentional about where you travel, so I just, uh, you can message me on LinkedIn. I will help you figure out how to diversify, uh, how to build more cross-cultural relationships because I think just about anyone can do it.
1: Yeah, reach out to Amita to on LinkedIn or at least follow her and listen to her incredible podcast, um, Brown Table Talk, because it's amazing. And uh, we're going to put a link to this book on our site and, and give it to everyone we can think to give it to because it's just, you know, it's, it's such a wonderfully generous thing this book that it, it encourages you to do things that are so healthy, you know, just wanting to reach out to people and learn is, is really just the beginning. You know, I could have been afraid to reach out to you on LinkedIn, but I wasn't. I just, I just was like, I feel like reaching out to me, I'm going to. And wonderful things happen when you reach out to people and actually start talking to them. So I think that's a, a wonderful message in this book. And, you know, there's some really great advice throughout it on how to do that as well. So another myth, myth 11, that really just resonated with me because of the, oh. because I'm in marketing and, and brand. I
0: knew it would, Steve. Yeah. I was excited to have this conversation Yeah, with this you. one,
1: man. Wow. Myth 11 is our ad wasn't racist. It was simply a mistake. And I think we've all, anyone in this industry has lived a little part of that been around it.
0: I know everyone's holding their breath. They're like, did they just say that? Yeah, I did. We just yeah, said we that. Yeah,
1: we just said that. Our ad wasn't racist. It was simply a mistake. Was it though? Uh, so in this chapter, you know, you, you talk about, you know, content and racist ads in the marketplace, but there's one thing, there's an example. I love your stories and your examples. Can you tell? Um, you talk about the listen to, to the whispers that are the loudest and a story you were helping with the DEI crisis and there was a junior marketer that raised an objection and just like junior marketers everywhere, they got ignored. So can you tell that story a little bit? Cause I think that's something everyone can relate to.
0: So if you're listening right now and you are touching marketing in your organization, you will live through a DNI crisis if you haven't yet. And you'll also be impacted as an employee, right? So that's an interesting thing, right? You know, when I think about some of these brands and the crisis they've gone through, like the employees are impacted. They have a lot of pride in the brands. And then all of a sudden they see this at the marketplace. But in this story, Steve, I talk about a crisis that I was helping manage that almost happened. And this junior marketer, he had said to me, you know, I actually said something to the head of market research. I went up to him and I said, like, I'm actually uncomfortable about this. And, and this gentleman didn't have necessarily the language to say, this is what I saw in this piece of content, but said, this is making me uncomfortable. And I'd like to talk about it, what I'm seeing. And the head of market research has said, it's been tested. Don't worry about it. Like I've tested it with what's been tested with consumers and, you know, in many large organizations and smaller ones as you're working with clients as well. Like there was like this testing and I said, okay, who did you test it with? Right. If you're talking to women of color, did you test, did you ask any women of color what they thought about that? So that's really interesting too. But, and I said, and as you just said, listen to the whispers. They're the loudest. And it's really hard, Steve, because it's not how I was raised culturally in my home. But as I became a marketer, I increasingly saw there is a bit of arrogance. Like I'll I'll say that, right? Because it's like, I'm supposed to know Steve so well. I know him so well. I can surprise and delight him with the product and service I never expected. No one can tell me I don't know Steve well enough right? Because then I don't know how I'm doing my job. Like I'm not doing the work to really understand and study your life so I can enhance the quality of it. So I do think as marketers, we to get defensive, right? Like I spent all this time working on it and now you're going to call my ad racist? No, I can't even tell you the number of times I've gotten that call on a Sunday night. And my husband's like, what's the, it's either from a company I was or a friend who's like, hey, can you look at this? And it's like 11 o'clock at night. It's going live tomorrow. There's nothing. They're they're trying to get me to say it's not racist. It's not sexist. It's not homophobic. And I I can't do that, right? I'm going to tell you where I think hurt and harm could be caused in this ad, right? This is how I think a black man seeing this ad might experience it. Have you thought about this, right? Or to say, no, this is racist and here is why. Like I'm going to give you the language of why, why exactly this is racist, right? You know, we talk about Gucci and blackface. We have a lot of examples. Yeah,
1: You have a lot of great examples of Burt's Bees example, all those examples.
0: Yeah. And so it's like, again, intent and impact. And I also want to say, I included those examples not to create and cause further harm to the black community in particular, but to educate people because so often I will find white leaders in particular, and let's say non-black leaders who will say, Oh yeah, that ad was racist. I'm like, well, can you explain to me why it was racist? Or did someone just teach you to say that? Right? Cause that's the point. Cause then you're going to repeat the mistake.
1: Yeah, you absolutely are. And I think it's a rock rolling downhill. The creative gets made, it gets quote unquote tested. It's going out the door and any brand listening, any brand manager, anyone that works in marketing, the voices have to be louder when it feels wrong. It's wrong. You know, you're, you're as a, you know, there's so much harm that gets done to brands and human beings and people that see this kind of stuff out there that if we are in doubt that there is something wrong with what we're putting out, maybe we should slow down.
0: Yeah. And this also, I think Steve gets to what you're alluding to is like, you have to create an environment where you want to hear the different voices and that's part of our job of being an inclusive leader. I will never forget. One CEO I was working with said to this division vice president, I told you to show me the ad. Have you shown it to her? And this person had not. And when I saw it, I said, I have real concerns about this, and here's why I'm going to tell you why. And I'm telling you, Steve, the CEO made him make the changes. He was so mad at me. Oh, he bet. was so pissed off. And I was like, you know what? That's okay. That's my job, and I can take it. But yeah. imagine being a junior marketer. You're not going to – There's cycle. Like there's like a cost to your career – and there's no psychological safety in that. And I didn't, I was just like, no, I'm, I'm giving you my opinion. You paid me for your expertise. I am tellin- telling you why, what the backlash is going to be and where I see racism in this ad. I don't think the person spoke to me again, and that's fine. But that, that's the cost, right? That's, it's, that's the cost of speaking up.
1: I think it's the cost of anyone that speaks up about something sometimes hopefully not all the yes, time. Yes. The response to get angry when someone saves you from doing harm is kind of a crazy response.
0: Well, but that is also what we talk we talk, we discuss in reimagine inclusion is like, but it wasn't racist. There's no racism in here. They're being too sensitive. You're you're it's too woke. It's overly politically correct. And I'm saying, as we saw with some of these ads, there's colorism, there's propagation propagating blackface, there is clear ties back to the institution of slavery and the history of how this country was like, this is it. And so I, if you're a marketer listening, and this is one of your jobs constantly is to work on increasing your cultural competency. There's no destination, but any community you want to serve, you have to have studied it. And you have to actually have representation from that community. Uh, give them a seat at the table and listen to what they have to say.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think saying as soon as you're trying to rationalize a message you're putting out or say, fight back and say, "Oh, they're too sensitive or people are too woke." You there's definitely a big problem right there. You know, full stop. Hang on, let's start over. You know, it's just yeah, and it happens over and over again, I know. Uh, it's like hopefully we'll Hopefully as human beings, we'll get to a better place, but it's going to take a lot of work. I hope so. Yeah, me too. So you do, you, you actually in this chapter, which I thought was so helpful. And I'm going to give to every marketer I know. You have a list of how to, you know, tips for focusing on inclusion in content and in products. Can you just touch on a few of them? There's, a, you know, you'll have to buy the book to get all of these because it, it's an amazingly helpful list. But if every marketer had this in front of them when we're putting together campaigns, it's gonna help get a much better result.
0: I'll start with the idea. You have an idea, product, concept, campaign. And in that first meeting, take notice of who's sitting there. If If you have a product that you're excited about that you want to authentically serve the black community and you have no black representation on this team that's a problem and then if you have me and you think as a woman of color i speak for black people again wrong right so then it's also and then you have one black person it's like no and then that it cannot be the burden cannot be on that person right and so what's beautiful steve about the work we do in, in storytelling it's like an ecosystem that's what's so fascinating because there's the agency, there's the brand. There's so many people that touch the creative that there's so many different opportunities in the system to make sure you have diversity representation. I talk a lot about behind the camera. We don't talk enough about that. Like behind the camera, in front of the camera. I'll tell you like, you know, inclusive products on set matter a lot. I mean, how many times have I, sidebar, but I've been a bridesmaid a lot. And every time I go and and the bride generously offers to have someone do my makeup. It never really ends well because they never have makeup for my skin tone, but I don't want to ruin the bride's day. So I don't say anything. So I look like orange.
1: I've seen that happen over and over again on sets where people are shooting commercials.
0: Yep. And so all of that matters to the editing, the lighting. So you think about, you really just have to sit and think and map out from the time that you have an idea to the time it's going to touch your consumers. Where are all those moments? So someone listening might be, that's so overwhelming okay, it is overwhelming. But here's the thing, I promise you, if each time you make one change, there's a tipping point. And it doesn't have to be you. Because if I come to Steve, and he is my agency lead, and we're working on a piece of content together. And I said, Steve, you know, I'd actually like to do, I'd like to have a diverse slate for the directors, right? Like, can we can we do that? And Steve be like, huh, tell me more, like, I haven't ever thought about that. And I'd be like, well, I'd love to like, you know, see who else can be behind the camera versus the same person we've hired the last 10 times. And then I inspire Steve, cause then maybe Steve will think about something else. Right. And so it's just really the tipping point that you want and, and sort of the, this idea that it's just the ripple effect, right. Across sort of what you're doing, anyone listening. I mean, other than like me, who's posting messages on LinkedIn myself, I do what I want. It's my own feed. Most, most brands, it's quite complex. It's not like, hey, just going to post this today. There's a lot of people who are looking at what's getting posted for a lot of these brands.
1: Yeah, and that just resonates. I think it should with anyone that's in marketing, anyone that's a storyteller. If you're communicating to a community and you don't understand that kind of stuff, and you get to producing content and producing any kind of marketing, and you haven't thought through that kind of processes, then you're not going to be very successful, you know, on the shoot or in the final product or at all. Cause you know, kind of where your intention might be fine, but you really haven't done the detailed work.
0: And I think something that you bring up is Steve, there has to be humility. There's humility for you as a director to say, I'm going to be shooting Mita, but I, I don't know if I have the lighting correct. I need help with this. Like I'm not sure if this is the best way in which to represent her. And and that takes humility because you as a director think you've had years of experience which you've had, but guess what friends, there's no such thing as expert as experts anymore. It's just deep expertise. There's no such thing as experts, right? The world moves so quickly. I have deep expertise in DEI. I'm not an expert. There's no way. How could I be an expert? Right. And so I think there's that humility that we've lost too, to just say, I don't have all the answers. So I'm going to ask for help.
1: Yeah. I think that's a huge part of being successful in this day and age is asking for help. Cause I, you mentioned that about that. You're not de and I expert that you just have deep expertise. And I love that because, you know, there's so many people out just yelling that they're an expert, but as fast as things change, there's no way we can be really, we just have to help each other. And I think that's a big part of it. So I love how at the end of the book, I think you answer a question that anyone that's read the book would answer, would start to ask themselves of what can I do, you know, or what should I even try to do? And I love the, the concept of the accountability really starts with all of us. And you pose the sort of challenge of how to process all 13 of these myths. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the book is quite expansive. I think about it as a, A resource like I'm there as a resource for you because I can't be everywhere. And so, the question is, can you go back through and think about the things that you would hold yourself accountable to on a quarterly basis? Can you share the book with a friend and you go through it together? Someone at work, maybe your team, maybe your boss. And there's a lot of people would say diversity, equity, and inclusion fatigue. Right? This is tiring. But I also bring up and reimagine inclusion. I'm like, okay, so when we get Steve, when you get a client, a new client. When you lose a client, when you double your revenues for the quarter, do you give up or you just keep going? Like, you keep going. Like, what? I don't understand. Like, what's this? Like, that's why it's like inclusion is a driver of the business, right? Anyone who's listening today who doesn't think that, I'm sorry, you're going to be left behind in five years if you haven't already been left behind, right? I mean, the data, we talk about the business case for diversity, which I know is exhausting, but back to the data, Nielsen is one source that says over $3.2 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer, right? Think about what an even more global and connected world we've become since the pandemic. How can you be ignoring these stats and not thinking about how you're embedding inclusion into everything you do? It's not like a tack on, it's at the center, should be at the center of your business. If you want to win and be competitive.
1: I completely agree with that. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about the way that you structured this book. I read the entire thing, but one of the things I'm going to do is keep coming back to certain points. Cause as I was reading, I was like, you know, I could tell, okay, I, I took something away from that. That one made me uncomfortable. I need to come back to that.
0: I love that. I love that you brought that point up because there will be things that make you feel uncomfortable. Sit with it and come back to it.
1: Yeah. You sit with it, you come back with it, you discuss it with people. It, it, Occurs to you again later. There's a ton of things that you can't just tackle and make better or change right away. But it's a muscle. You start exercising the muscle and the the empathy needed to try to understand where other people are coming from and how they feel when you do or don't do certain things. And I think that you know that's really the the center of inclusion or being excluded. And one of the things your book did for me is really bring home that feeling of like, you know, you hear the word inclusion and I think people, when you, anytime you have a term, people start to tune it out. And as soon as I started looking at it, it as the very human feeling of being excluded, that really connected with me.
0: Maybe I should change the title of the book. <laughs> no, I think people will I, I, I,
1: I got it from the book. So I think the idea is all through it. <laughs> Thank you.
0: I think that's you awesome. feel that that's from powerful. the book.
1: Yeah, it yeah. is really powerful. I think that's one of the main things that you take away from the book is that it's a very human feeling you get from this. And I think that's because of the stories that you tell all through it. You share a lot of personal stories and they really bring the points home. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I, this was amazing. You know, I, I, th- I hope your book does incredibly well and I really hope people share it with each other and I hope literally everyone buys it.
0: Thank you, Steve. Well, I am so honored to be a guest again, a repeat guest, because I know I'm taking a space from someone else, but I just appreciate you having the time to read it. And it just means so much that it impacted you because that's what I hope the book will do. Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. You can pre-order it on Amazon now.
1: Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story.